Holy Spirit, would you make your presence known to us? Father, knowing that, that you were here before us, I pray that, that we would meet you now. I pray that we would feel the weighty presence of the living God. I pray that that feeling would permeate all of the things that, that we feel in the natural into the things that we just have inside. I pray that you would even go back through the last week of the life that we've lived. I pray for all of those, those moments, all those that, that we felt separated from you. I pray that, that you would bring us close to you. I pray that we would know that you were there. I pray for all of the things that, that we can just lift our hands up and, and praise you for the work that you've done. I pray that you would hear our thanks. Father, I pray that, that you would now decrease me. We pray for your increase. We pray that you would be on the throne of this church and that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, man. We are using the Gospel of John together to examine how God expresses himself to his people, how the weighty, felt presence of God manifests, a reality that we are capturing with the word glory. His glory, his felt presence, the, the weighty, felt presence of God that makes him real to us, accessible to us, but also he makes us real through us, and he becomes accessible through us. It's the glory of God that testifies of his existence, of his love, and his activity in our lives. And it's glory that John presents in the gospel, this good news that we know that we can find to be true, the good news about the Most High God. So far, we've seen his glory revealed in, in signs and wonders that show a pattern, a, a pattern that, that moves us towards those that, that he is moving towards those that seek him. We also see that, that, that he will see through our masks of brokenness, our masks of pride. He will see through all of that, and his gaze will land on who we truly are. We also see that he will provide us with the one true sacrifice to be whole and in righteousness with God. Today, though, we see glory revealed through healing, through bringing order back to life by providing physical and spiritual healing. Now, Scripture recognizes a really close link between physical and spiritual health. And it's something that we must pay attention to as well. Also, with healing being seen as an image of salvation through Jesus, we see healing as an activity of, of, of the living God. Healing, or healer, is a part of the identity of God. And so healing is an extension of, of the essence of the creator, the essence of, of how creation will experience the creator. Exodus 15 gives us a name of God, Jehovah Rapha. Jehovah Rapha, which means simply the Lord who heals. 
What we see in Exodus 15 is God declaring, I am Jehovah who heals you. I am God who heals you, both in body and in soul. God heals us in body by preserving us and curing us from disease and injury. But also, he heals us, he heals our soul by pardoning our sin. Psalm 103, verses 2 through 3 says, Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good thing he does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals all of my diseases. He is Jehovah Rapha. Healing as an expression of God's felt weighty presence begins in the Old Testament. And we see examples of this in First and Second Kings uh, with prophets operating with delegated authority. We see Jesus heal also with that authority, being that authority. And after Jesus, we see the apostles, but also the church, which includes us, heal again with the authority through Jesus. Healing weaves through the entire narrative of scripture and is an expression of the weighty felt presence of God. Now, in, in addition to the first order effect of healing, of providing relief to someone that, that needs to be healed, these miraculous healings also testify to the power and authority of Jesus, as well as the reality of his identity and nature as Jehovah Rapha. Watching Jesus heal is a testament to his divinity. It's as much a demonstration of compassion and concern as it is a beacon for those that are suffering the consequences of a disordered life. We're going to begin together in John chapter 4, verse 43. At the end of the two days, Jesus went to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his hometown. Yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything that he did there. As he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son, who was about to die. Jesus asked, Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? The official pleaded, Lord, please come. Please come now before my little boy dies. Then Jesus told him, go back home, your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. While the man was on his way, one of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them, when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, yesterday afternoon, at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that that was the very time that Jesus had told him, your son will live. And he and his, his entire household believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. The second sign, the first one being the, the holy bartender, his actions at the wedding turning water into wine. Um, this, this healing, this miracle, that what we see 
today has, has a depth that, that resonates with us even today. Now, just like we saw with his encounter with the woman at the well we talked about last week, this is a demonstration also of what true worthiness really is. Also last week, to a man like Nicodemus, Worthiness would have been demonstrated through behavior, through doing, saying, and, and, and also being the right thing at the right time. Nicodemus, being a religious leader, got to, dis, to uh, set the terms for others as far as what worthiness really was. Uh, the man coming to Jesus for healing is well out of the realm of worthiness from the perspective of Nicodemus and the other religious leaders. This man is closer to the woman at the well in terms of her worthiness, his worthiness to stand in front of the living God. This man coming to Jesus for healing is about as unworthy to the Jewish religious context as a guy could be. He's an official that works for the occupying force of the land that used to be the political nation of Israel. Now this land, a part of the Roman Empire, this guy that's coming to Jesus is the enemy, or he, he at least works for the enemy. Now, we don't know if this, uh, if this official, if this government official was a Jew or a Gentile, but either way, he's on the wrong side of the fence on this one. He's either working for the enemy, or he really is the enemy. Would either one of those make him unworthy to stand before Jesus, unworthy to be in community with, with other Jews? This man is not worthy of what he's asking for. He is a prime example for us of religious unworthiness. Now viewed from the other side, he's also behaving really strangely. This government official is not acting the way that that a government official ought to act. He's traveling a distance that would require an overnight stop. This is over 20 miles to beg for mercy from a carpenter's son. Now, remember that this story began with the reminder that Jesus is in his hometown. People knew him before he began his ministry. This government official had access to all that Rome had to offer. He had access to resources to get help for his son. He probably had heard of, of who Jesus was, not, I mean, even if it was just from hearing about the, the miracles and, and the, the signs and wonders that, that put Jesus on his radar, after that point, he probably at least heard that this is just some carpenter, carpenter's son. There is unworthiness throughout this entire narrative. There is no reason for this government official that has everything from the, from the Roman authorities to be looking to a carpenter's son for help. This government official worked for the preeminent power of the known world, and he's going to a blue-collar dude, or the son of a blue-collar dude, from Galilee. This backwater podunk. Man, this is, what we have captured here is a paradigm-busting historical event. This 
doesn't happen. A Roman official doesn't need help from anyone. And a carpenter's son can't help anyone. It begs the question, what is going on? Why is this happening? The answer is glory. The way that people have felt the weighty presence of God that was experiencing Jesus had become more and more known. The word is getting out. The religious people who had finally crafted their, their ritual and their ritual world refused to accept anything that operated outside of that ritual world. But those seeking salvation noticed that something was going on. They noticed that something was different. They noticed that something, that some power was operating outside of that ritual world. So an official of the government that had access to resources of the Roman Empire, this man swallowed his pride and did not allow his worldview to get in the way of meeting Jesus. His need was that great. It's interesting to put worthiness and need next to each other and see that this is exactly the type of person that needs Jesus. When he finds Jesus, he's met in a manner that's similar to how Jesus uh, met with Nicodemus, also with the woman at the well. There's a greeting that challenges the encounter and serves as as a foundation for the teaching to come. After asking for divine intervention, the man says, heal my son. Jesus responds with what might seem like an exclamation of frustration and resignation. Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? Now, this is not directed at the government official that just asked for this divine intervention. Now, we miss this thanks to the English language being just a really crappy language, but this is the plural you. This isn't the, the individual you. He's not talking to the government official. He's talking to all of the people that, that are around and watching this encounter. All of the people that, that ritually would be worthy to be standing in front of the living God. All of the people who do not have to bust their paradigm in order to submit their pride to the, to the place where they would come to Jesus and ask him for anything. All of the people that are standing around that have access to everything written about the plan of God that are missing what's happening in their midst. Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? I'll give you my paraphrase of what Jesus is saying to the crowd. He's saying, hey, shut up and watch. Shut your word hole and pay attention to what's about to happen. With your word hole shut, the important thing is not the miracle, but the one that gives it. 
And then he says, let me show you what I mean. After Jesus admonishes the crowd, the official pleads for his son again. And he makes that very point to Jesus. He's not too proud to take this rebuke. Even though it wasn't directed at him, he's part of the crowd, and so he heard it. Think about, about this. Uh, just one, one response, one potential response. He goes to Jesus, heal my son. You're not going to believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders. Oh, shoot. Okay, well, I'm going to head back home now. No, he steps in even further. Jesus, heal my son. He's not too proud to take the rebuke. I wonder if anybody besides me needs to hear that today. This official is not too proud to take the rebuke. In order to stand in front of the living God, he can take the rebuke because he knows what's coming next. He is not so full of himself. He is not so married to his worldview that he takes his marbles and goes home. He's broken. He's scared. He needs God to be real. He needs this encounter to be real. He needs God to manifest. He loves his little boy so much. He knows that only God can keep his boy from death. There is nothing that he has access to apart from Jesus that can heal his son. He's demonstrating to us a reality that we all share with him. Nothing on earth can make us whole but Jesus, not of this world, has the power and the compassion to use that power to bring us to wholeness. What this man is doing, what this unworthy government official is doing, this is a demonstration of faith, a faith that leads to surrender. And it's a a lesson for the crowd, but also for the crowd that includes us now watching this paradigm-busting historical encounter. You know, we think about that famous John 3.16 verse we talked about last week. This is a demonstration of that in action because access to the glory of God, access to the felt, weighty presence of God is not achieved through ritual. It's not achieved through worthiness. Faith. Faith causes us to say, Jesus, please, be Jesus. Faith allowed this unworthy man to experience the weight of God's presence. Jesus also demonstrates in this, more so than than response to worthiness, more so than just a demonstration of faith. Jesus demonstrates that he is God because he heals this kid. And he doesn't heal this kid that's right in front of him. He, he heals this kid that's over 20 miles away. 
from over 20 miles away, Jesus speaks it, and it is. Now in John 5, starting in verse 1, after Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days, inside the city near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said. For I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets in ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began, and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, Now you are well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who healed him. There is a lot going on here. See, this next healing is, an, is another attack that Jesus makes on ritual but it's also an attack on superstition. The idea that, that chance, that, that magic, or the unexplained can be manipulated into human provision. You really don't have to look too far into our culture to see how alive and well superstition is as, as a, a hoped-for mode and mechanism for healing. Now, three times a year, Jews would mark three different feasts on, on their religious calendar, and, and many would make a pilgrimage to the temple in, in order to, to celebrate there. Now, just inside the city, near the gate where shepherds would bring flocks in, there's a pool, a reservoir or a basin that, that, that gives water to the, the whole city. This pool exists and can be visited today. This is an uh, archaeologist. They, they found this. Um, it is named... After we have, uh, we name a lot of hospitals after this, Bethesda, which is Aramaic for house of mercy. At this pool, there are some shaded covered areas, and, and, and due to a local superstition, those that needed healing would, would show up there, and they would wait for this unseen force to come and stir the water. And after the, that water was stirred, the first person that could make it in there was said to be healed. Now, this superstition gained traction to the place where their huge crowds would wait to, to see this water stirred, and then they would, 
you know, all attempts to cannonball into the midst of this to be the first one to touch the water. And this guy that has been laying there, he's paralyzed. He can't move. He cannot make it into the water to, to avail himself of this magical force. It's interesting because we talk about how difficult faith is, but faith was not difficult for them in this superstition. They had faith in the superstition. And this healing doesn't require the existence of God at all. Just a belief in some magical force. This man that's about to encounter Jesus had been paralyzed for 38 years. For 38 years, he is at the mercy of those around him. Not just this mercy of, of hope that somebody would like toss him into the pool, uh, you know, if the water gets stirred, but he's at the mercy of, of his community for his very survival. He can't earn a living. But he's made it 38 years. Somebody is feeding him. He is dependent on, on other people's compassion and charity. He's dependent on them to eat. He's also probably pretty dirty. He's probably laying in his own filth, filth for most of the day. This man was so taken by superstition that he really did believe that he could be healed only if someone carried him into the water after it was stirred. This is, when we look at the, the, the station of this man's life, this is the epitome of helpless. This man is the epitome of helpless. And then Jesus. Jesus begins with the question, do you want to be healed? Now, this, this is one where you, you may have heard in the past that this is a place where, where people would scoff. What a stupid question. You know, what, what's Jesus doing? Like, of course he wants it. Who wouldn't want to be healed? But this question actually has more depth to it than we might think. And it has more depth, especially as we internalize this and we hear this question for ourselves. Do you want to be healed? Because this is what it means if he's healed. For this man who for 38 years has been paralyzed, for this man for 38 years who's lived off, lived off of charity, if he's healed, he has to give all of that up. If he's healed, he will have to earn a living. If he's healed, he is going to have to work to provide for himself. If he's healed, he has to give up this, the, the life that he's kind of carved out for himself, the routine, the comfort, the ease. It is so much more complex than saying, well, of course he doesn't want to be paralyzed. This is not a small question for this man. It's not a small question for us. This question for us 
Do you want to be healed? Or are you so comfortable in your brokenness that to leave it would not be desirable? This question has some more weight when we look at it from that angle. This man, 38 years paralyzed, maybe he has made friends with his paralysis. Maybe he's made, sen- made, made friends with the compassion that he gets from living in his own filth. Maybe he's made friends with his own brokenness. Maybe he's allowed this friend this paralysis to become his identity and maybe putting down this identity would be too much. And so when Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? It really is a heart searching question. This personal question is one that we all have to confront. Do we truly want to be changed by God? This question is really at the heart of the glory. Are we willing to give up our brokenness? Are we willing to give up all of the things that we've made comfortable to experience the weighty felt presence of God? Do you want to be healed. Let's come back to that. We'll hold on to that for a second. The man answers immediately in the affirmative, right? He says, yeah, of course I want to be healed. He does. Okay, so the weighty felt presence of God comes against the lies of magical superstition, and Jesus says, get up, be healed. Now, beyond the impact on this man, the reality of an experience of Jesus is about to land on the religious. 38 years, this dude has laid around and begged, and now here he is getting caught breaking scribal law. He's breaking all of the the ritual, the rules uh, of the day. Now, remember last week we saw that that scribal law is is the interpretation of the Torah, the interpretation of the first five books of the Old Testament that, that had kind of evolved over centuries that would tell people what they must do to be in right relationship with God. And so, you know, even using this work on the Sabbath and carrying things on the Sabbath, the, the Pharisees would make the, the rule about what actually constituted carrying a weight. How much was work and how much was just like stuff that you were carrying. Apparently a sleeping bag is work. So these Pharisees, religious leaders, gatekeepers of a relationship with God, they created the path that one must follow to be considered holy, to be considered worthy, to be considered righteous. They decide what was considered work. And this dude that just got healed by the living God, walking down the street, religious folks are telling him, hey, you are unworthy of being in the presence of God because you're carrying that sleeping bag. He was just healed by the living God. And they're telling him, you can't do that. 
You are now unworthy of worshiping God. I was just healed by him. Now you're unworthy. This is what I call Jesus providing a holy now to this kind of thinking. But to make sure that this man understands now what's going on, Jesus meets him another time and spells it out for him. He's going to talk to him about worthiness. He's going to talk to him about ritual. He's going to talk to him about healing. In this meeting, Jesus makes sure that, he, that this man understands that being healed and staying healed links us to relationship, not ritual. The link between physical healing and spiritual healing is found in the center of order. And it's the same type of submission and surrender that we saw in the first healing. It's operating with the knowledge that nothing on this earth, nothing I can get from someone else, nothing you can get from me, nothing I can create on my own, nothing can lead me out of my brokenness. In this place of acknowledging that there is nothing that can lead me out of my brokenness enters Jesus. And through faith, through surrendering my comfort, Jesus finds me worthy. Not because I followed the rules, but because I followed the king. When we see that, we see a future with Jesus. And the future with Jesus looks like this. Revelation 21. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. The outcome of faith is this reality. The outcome of faith is the felt weighty presence of God. The outcome of faith is glory. And this is what glory looks like. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. I like that reality, that verse, that promise so much. I'm just going to say it again. Do we have imagination for this? Do we have faith for this? This reality that we see in this, in, in, in this narrative of the glory, of the self-expression of, of, of God coming to his creation, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. Jehovah Rapha, 
the God that heals. The God that heals is the way that God chooses to express himself to his children. He does this because he meets us when we're seeking him. He does this because he sees beyond our masks of brokenness. He does this by reaching into that brokenness. He heals it. He offers us a new life lived in the reality that he is the way to righteousness with God. And with that faith, we experience order in our lives. As we turn back to worship, would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would release the gifts of your spirit here. I pray that that in these two stories of healing, I pray that we would see beyond just the words and the narrative. I pray that we would see your glory in each of these stories. I pray that, that we would see everything from the perspective of those that lived this. I pray that we would see the lies of worthiness, how you come against those lies, how you break them. I pray that we can see the outcome of surrendering our pride. I also pray, Father, that that you would allow us to hear in your voice the question, do you want to be healed? And I pray that as we hear that question, I pray that you would come into our hearts and I pray that, that you would show us all of those places where we have made friends with our brokenness. I pray that you'd show us where we have become comfortable with our brokenness. I pray, Father, that you would come against that comfort in the name of Jesus. I pray that you'd show us another way. I pray, Father, that this would be what we can give up, that we can lay down to pick up the cross to follow you. And so, Father, we just speak to the barriers to healing and ask that you would come against them now. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your compassion. We ask that you would heal us in the name of Jesus.